Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome on to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as in this episode, we get to speak with Gareth Hughes. And we have one of those really wide-ranging conversations that goes into his childhood, his early years, his life as a politician, and what he's doing today. So that involves a focus on the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, Aotearoa. But like most episodes of Seeds, what we're really interested in is what has shaped a person into who they are today. If you enjoy this episode, then don't forget that there's 350 others in the back catalog. What I'm trying to do with Seeds is collect stories of who are living lives of purpose. I think finding out what motivates them and what led them to be who they are today can help us on our journeys as well. And there's plenty of information on this project at theseeds.nz. And in the show notes, I'll put links to things that we talk about. And that includes the Seeds Impact Conference, which will be coming up in October. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Gareth. All right, well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Gareth Hughes, who's the country lead for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance Aotearoa. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, kia ora, Stephen. I'm really glad that you're able to stop in um, and have a conversation because I'm really curious about this um, concept of movements and what it is that people are thinking about the world and where we sit in it. And I would love to find out more about your thoughts. But before we do that, I always like to go back in time. So in your case, could you tell us a little bit about what was life like when you were, say, five years old? Yeah, well, five years old, I would have, that would have been 1986. So, you know, the, the country was going through massive change. And I describe my childhood as just a normal Kiwi childhood. You know, Dad worked at the freezing works. Uh, my parents split up a few years later. So, you know, that was something uh, big that happened to my little family. But what I remember growing up in Gisborne most of all was sort of, you know, bare feet, playing with other kids in the in the backyards. We'd camp at the same beach every summer for, gosh, 18 years of my life, Poor Arbor Beach, just north of Gisborne. You know, it was just a, a safe, happy, sort of lovely place and time to grow up in. Yeah, that's great. So were you living in the town or were you in a rural area? Or No, we were living in what's called Fotapoko, uh, Gisborne, which is just a sort of a suburb close to the city. Mm-hmm. You know, I was able to walk to school every day. My best mate lived uh, across the, literally across the road from me. So, yeah, it was an awesome little town. It sort of felt like a bit like the edge of the world, you know, um, it was, I was in my teen years before I even sort of went to Wellington. I, I won a Royal Society essay competition, and um, that was the first time I ever got to leave uh, Gisborne by myself, which, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a day's drive to, to get to Auckland or a day's drive to get to Wellington. So, yeah, we did feel a little isolated, but it was nice. It was the beaches are particularly the best part. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I've driven through that area, and it's always amazed me how pretty it is. And up as you're going even farther in north like like Waikere Moana and some of those beautiful spots on that east coast that kind of secluded aren't they? Yeah well it's kind of like Fjordland in the sense it's a part of the country that most New Zealanders haven't gone to right you know you've really want got to want to go there to to get there but we used to have our school camps at Waikere Moana so you know that was an amazing place we've got a friend with a batch uh, there in the Uruwera uh, little township there 
And then my dad ended up actually buying a, a small farm north of Gisborne in Whangara. That was where Whale Rider was, was filmed. Ah. Uh, so actually the film crew were staying at the farm. And wow. uh, yeah, it's a great little part of the country. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember um, that hike that I did. I think it was about five days around the lake. Oh, around the lake, It was yeah. like a really long one, but it was so quiet you know like there was literally nothing apart from birds and you know the trees and the wind it was yeah really amazing to get so far removed from you know society and and um horns blowing and yeah traffic. And <laughs> once upon a time new zealand was like that yeah. uh it's the sort of last remnant of untouched new zealand yeah so growing up in that sort of environment were you aware of that or you know like w- the special place that you were or was it only later reflecting the oh kind of definitely thought? only later i mean gisborne was pretty economically deprived growing up in the 80s so you know i still remember the late 80s when you know dad and 900 other men lost their jobs at the freezing works you know overnight you know sort of my memories of the 90s growing up there as a teenager was you know stores closing down and sort of a grim place to be so as soon as i turned 18 i was out of there uh, i tried to move back there many years later and you know have a a life that was built around just surfing and uh, having a more relaxed life but in the end I couldn't get full-time employment there back then either so yeah it's this kind of city that I couldn't wait to leave but now I've got a whole bunch of you know peers my own age who haven't grown up there but have moved back there Ah. or sorry have moved there because they love the lifestyle yeah that's really interesting it's all about perspective isn't it (laughs) yeah yeah so growing up there as a teenager maybe or, or you know in your high school years um, when did you get that sense of as soon as I can, I'm out of here? Was it quite young or was it as you were getting to 18? Or? Yeah, it's a good question that I've actually never asked myself. Um, well, that's was, what we're here for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was lucky in the sense that I always sort of knew that I would go to university despite sort of no one in my family having that background. Uh, I come from a naval family, actually. Um, I recently found my great-grandfather uh, died in, in, the, in the war it was sunk in a battleship um, uh, I'm actually going to inherit his ring when my father passes which is an interesting little quirk of family history I've just discovered both my parents met in the Navy my mum and my dad and your uncles and stuff were in there as well right so yeah there wasn't that sense of uh, definitely going off to university but I always sort of knew I would um, I just yeah had a interesting time growing up it was really hard with my parents sort of separating and sort of they only spoke through lawyers for a a few Mm. years which wasn't a great sort of environment to grow up in but then wonderful friends um, got really involved in sort of cultural and sport activities growing up so look it was a really happy lifestyle growing up yeah and that that sort of the split that happened how old were you when that probably about 10 I think okay maybe nine um and I'm the, I'm the oldest of uh, two, a younger brother and sister, and then I ended up with three older stepsisters who you know, t- taught me how to smoke cigarettes and <laughs> things like that. Right. Oh, so it ended up multiplying the family quite dramatically then from yeah. three to six. <laughs> it's funny, the, the image that is in my head of that time is um, our driveway just chock a block full of cars. Right. So, you know, Gisborne's a flat town. It's, you know, very easy to bike or, or walk anywhere. But, you know, I had a car, my stepsister had a car, the parents had two cars, the, there was the caravan, the camper van. Right. So, yeah, that's sort of the image of Gisborne. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just, I know where we're going to get to eventually is some, you know, involvement in politics and, and things like that. Were there, were there hints or signs of that as a teenager like I'm imagining the word social justice or you know things like that was that something that was 
you were thinking about or I'm a bit embarrassed to say I I, I was so I, I talked about the, the essay competition I wrote which was actually arguing against nuclear power so there must have been something deep in the back of my brain and that was the time of French nuclear testing in the Pacific and right. you know people really sort of excised about it um, I was mostly interested in rugby and, and girls and cars I had a Mark One Red Ford Escort, you know, lowered with mag wheels, and that was my sort of baby and passion in my final years at school. But being a slightly naughty kid at school, as well as quite academically inclined and involved in lots of sports and cultural activities, I wasn't made a prefect in my school, and that sort of stuck in Macraw a bit because um, you basically had to be on the first fifteen to become a prefect. So. In, in a fitter peak, I ran for board of trustees and was elected. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I guess I did have a bit of a political career starting out. And right. uh, then ended up becoming the chairperson of the district youth council as well on the back of it. So it was kind of funny because the prefects spent most of their day by the school gates telling kids to lift their socks up. Sure. Whereas <laughs> I actually got paid to attend meetings on the board of trustees. So, Huh, interesting. Do you remember the moment uh, like that? of that happening and realizing that you hadn't been selected as a prefect and thinking, I'm going to find a way or yeah. How did that No, happen? it wasn't sort of conscious. It was um, a sense of injustice. Um, so my school had won the world school rugby championships the year before. And basically if you're in the first 15, you were sort of gods amongst men. And um, if you weren't, you were, you know, not as important. So I think of the maybe 11 prefects, nine were in the first 15 and the other right. two were from the first 11. So a very sports sort of focused school. So it just felt wrong. Um, and I wasn't that naughty, to be honest. So um, I was a little bit disappointed, but in the end, it really worked out well for me. I did something similar at my university as well. Um, got a bit upset with the residential hall I was staying in and some of the injustices I thought I saw around me. So I started an angry residence association. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's origins of this fairly early on of, you know, getting involved and being on committees or boards and things like that. Yeah. And I think my parents really did teach me to have a strong sense of values. So, um, yeah, I think that was a strong sense really inculcated with me. And, you know, a lot of people have values, but for some reason I've sort of managed to build a career around fighting for my values and, and what I believe in, which is a massive privilege to look back in my 40s now. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And that, I guess that origin, like now that we have the benefit of hindsight, <laughs> were there other things that were influencing you or shaping you to, to go in that direction and, and to want to you know, have a voice or, or make your voice heard? Well, looking at, I mean, politics. So, you know, the 90s was a, a period of national in power. And I was involved in the Young Enterprise Scheme in my last year of high school, you know, where people start a business. Mm -hmm. And we actually um, hosted an event where we invited the Prime Minister, Dame Jenny Shipley, to come, you know, give a breakfast talk to the business community, which we organised. And what I remember is I asked her a question about student loans because I was off to university. Um, and she stood up and she lectured me and hectored me and sort of pointed her finger it felt like 15 minutes and I was sort of withering in my seat as this powerful politician was basically making me feel bad that the state had been so generous to students and how dare I ask for you know questioning student loans so I really was turned off from politics and you know my only political memories are things like the mother of all budgets and my mum crying, like that her benefit was going to be slashed and we didn't know how we were going to survive. Mm. You know, it was things like the, the, all the, the employment industry shutting down in Gisborne. 
So I started paying attention to politics in 1999. I turned 18 just a few weeks before the election. Mm-hmm. And that was the first election the Greens were elected to Parliament. And it was, um, you know, as a young man, really exciting to see these sort of new young politicians coming in, like people like Nandor Tantros or Jeanette Fitzsimons. But if I'm honest, it was probably their policy around legalising pot and wiping student loans <laughs> that attracted you know, this dumb 17-year-old. <laughs> it's really interesting, though, to, to think about those origins. And, and even something you mentioned before with your father you know, losing his job. And like that must have been a very stressful time for the family as well. So there were things in the background happening that were you know, getting you thinking. Because um, I guess life wasn't handed to you on a plate there. <laughs> no, and it was very much sort of a, a regular working class sort of existence. Um, yeah. You know, we holidayed 20 minutes north of Gisborne. We didn't go overseas. Yeah. Um, you know, I was jealous of people, you know, who, who had gone to Disneyland as a child, for example. And, you know, it's something I'm quite privileged that I was able to take my kids to Disneyland a few years ago, um, which is something I never would have dreamt of mm. growing up. Um, yeah, but it was... A, a, a good childhood growing up close to nature, you know, close to the beaches, spending so much time in the sea, mm. you know, getting involved in sports. Um, yeah. I think that's a good childhood for anyone. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I was, um, so I have an accent, but I actually grew up in New Zealand. So I was growing up similar time, actually, um, a couple of years ahead of you, but based down here in Christchurch. So there was a lot of, you know, going to ski or to go to the beach and go out into the woods and hiking and yeah there's so much opportunity for that um in this country so yeah and i think it imprints on your your psyche i mean i'm not a huge outdoorsy person i'm not a uh, a tramper but oh gosh i love our forests and our beaches and you know um our mountains and i think every new zealander has that real deep innate sense of connection yeah that's great so you're coming up um you've moved down starting university yeah tell us a little bit more about your life at that time and what you were into again i was still pretty um focused on girls and rugby and cars and i remember my first year at university walking around in my rugby jersey and uh got my first job at burger king um, which is funny now because i'm the chairperson of new zealand's largest animal rights charity and right. you know uh, <laughs> a, a long-term vegetarian and vegan um but i met my um now wife uh, then girlfriend at university my first year um uh i, re- I I'm really lucky that some fortunate accidents, happy accidents, have happened in my life that have really steered my direction. I'm very much sort of a believer in, you know, the universe will do the right thing for you, even if you don't understand it. So I totally botched my enrollment at university. Hmm. Um, yeah, this is paper forms back then. There was sure. no internet. And uh, I felt the pressure for my parents that I had to do something serious like business. Um, I really wanted to do what I was passionate in, which was history. So I enrolled in, I think, 17 papers in my first year. Okay. So when I turned up to university to get my student ID, they said, this is ridiculous. You know, you've got to wipe half these right. papers. You can't and, graduate in one year. No, that's right. <laughs> yep. um, and so they said, look, you've got, mate, you've got to like cut, cull half these papers. So away from my parents and a sense of freedom is, you know, first on my own, cut all the boring sounding papers and did things I was interested in, which was history, classical history, um, and then I sort of 
got a passion for religious studies. Uh, this September 11 happened in my second year, and while I'm not religious and definitely wasn't a religious household, there was the sense that religion was shaping the, the world and changing global geopolitics, and I just wanted to understand what was the motivations for this, and so I ended up doing a degree in religious studies and history. Uh, but I met my, my wife at the university hall and she invited me to study for a classics exam one night and that's how we met and yeah, we've been um, best mates ever since then. And she was a, a vegetarian, she'd just lived in France for a year on an exchange, so coming from you know provincial Gisborne she seemed amazing and cosmopolitan. Right, and, yeah. Um, been to these far off places. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, she was really passionate about animals or uh, about the environment. And at this point at university, I started becoming more interested in the environment. I joined the Green Party, mm-hmm. uh, who, who had entered Parliament, and I was really inspired by sort of the new way they were doing politics. It seemed very much like a wind, a breath of fresh air was blowing through this sort of musty old parliamentary buildings, as represented by you know Jenny Shipley and the only interaction I'd had with the politician. Uh, yeah, and I started working for Greenpeace part-time as one of those street fundraisers, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought I was the luckiest person in the world because um, I was paid to, to talk to people about the environment on the street and have these conversations. I ended up doing that for uh, my entire undergrad degree part-time. I mean, inside, reflecting on it now, I don't know how on earth I did it because it was a, a grueling, heartbreaking job in a sense. I mean, imagine standing on the side of the street for many hours a day trying to ask people to stop and give you time where people are just trying to go about their busy lives, trying to get credit card details off people. <laughs> you know, you maybe only get one or two people a, a day. Um, I do remember crying on the street at, at one point, just feeling like, oh, how on earth are we going to solve these problems? So good training for politics. Yeah. You know, constant rejection, constantly going out and proactively contacting people, trying to get credit card details off people. Yeah. Good training. Yeah, that's amazing. What else did you learn from that experience? Because that is, yeah, that that would be a fascinating study of psychology. You know, like you could probably tell if you'd done it that long, you could probably see someone walking towards you and have a mental image of what's the angle here or how are they going to be receptive? Do I bother? Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I've never really thought about it, but you're right. You do sort of have like a radar that you put on and... Um, most of the time I was in Wellington, though I'd do some trips around the country where you'd go to a different town and you know, ask people to, to become a member. But I remember very rarely would I ever go to Lambton Quay or the terrace. Um, mm-hmm. Back then we used to call them suits, which is funny because you know, I wear a suit quite often nowadays. Um, very hard for, to get membership out of those people. It was often on Cuba Street or, or Courtney Place in Wellington. Um, yeah, it was funny, right? This was the early 2000s. I had sort of... Uh, super messy hair, um, probably looked like a bit of a street urchin hippie. Um, and maybe that attracted me to different type of people. But, mm. you know, this is the time when climate change was just taken off a, a, as a topic and, you know, talking to people about it. And it is interesting to think that how much it was disputed back then and how climate denialism was a, a very real thing. Mm. It's kind of, I felt like a bit of a... Um, a forerunner, you know, an early adopter maybe of some of these topics, which is kind of sad because we've known about all these issues for such a long time Mm. that here in the 2020s where it's so apparent you can't ignore it whatsoever, kind of I rue it in a sense like we've missed all this time where we could have been doing something about it. There was more than enough knowledge, and that's what, you know, me as a young 18-year-old was trying to convince people on the street in the 2000s. Mm. you got to have that conviction, don't you, to be able to do that 
to go up to strangers and to talk to them. And it sounds like you had that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I did. But um, look, I just, to begin with, thought I just had the best job in the world because I was talking about stuff that, you know, when I was learning about what was happening with, you know, toxic pollution or how we were massively overfishing the oceans or climate change, I was like, guys, you know, you've got to see this. Like, if you just look at the data and the evidence, like, surely you'd be astounded as and uh, inspired to do something about it as I was. Mm. Um, the world doesn't work like that, but, you know, yeah, it was something I wanted to share with people. Yeah, that's really great. And just thinking about body language and, you know, approaching people or how you greet them or things like that, were there any, I don't know, tips or tricks that you learned? Because I'm just thinking of my listeners, you know, like it's always interesting to learn new things. Um, did you have any ways that you would talk to people or approach them or um, that you have found actually that's really helpful later as well. Yeah, again, that's interesting too. The the main thing I did was as you're walking down the street trying to give the person as much notice as possible. Right. Because I think it is a bit shocking if someone's you know busy head down in, in a paper or whatever they were doing to be, you know, asked or accosted as many people feel and it's quite shocking so their first response is sort of you know flight or fight and you know they flee and they get a bit shocked so giving people lots of notice a, a huge smile uh, to, to welcome them yep. but look, I was a pretty mediocre um, street fundraiser I think I got about 500 memberships in the end which was okay but I had some colleagues who probably would have been amazing salespeople because they knew all the sort of psychological tips and tricks and mm. um yeah, it felt a little manipulative, if I'm honest. The, mm. They would use these sort of psychological tricks, mm. um, which clearly work. Yeah. But um, I just genuinely tried to have a, an open, honest conversation. And um, I think it was the smile and just really trying to feel, give people the sense that they could be, you know, we could do something about these problems because yeah. I was you know, presenting pretty grim news. Yeah, so giving a sense of agency maybe that, hey, you can have a place, a, a role to play. And maybe tricks is the wrong word to be using. Maybe it's better to say tips because Techniques, I think yeah. actually there's a lot to be said for body language. Like I notice, you know, like we're talking in person. I love to do in-person interviews because I like to look someone in the eyes when I'm asking them about their childhood, you know. And I use my hands a lot like as we're talking. The people listening can't mm -hmm. see it, but I've got my hands and they're open kind of palms out as a gesture of I have nothing to hide here you know like, yep, yep. and I see quite often um, people get up on a stage and they're speaking and they'll do this you know cross cross their arms like the body language is closed and I just think wow if if you just opened your arms up and said you know like that intro by by spreading your arms open that's signaling to people that hey I'm a friend rather than I've got my arms closed, you know, I've got something to hide. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's very true. Uh, I think I was, I'm, I'm a, I feel like a bit of a strange fish in the sense that I'm personally quite an introvert. Like, I'd love nothing better than spending time by myself mm. in a book. Mm. Um, I find sort of being on a stage quite draining or even interacting with people uh, a little draining. But then I actually love being on a stage and like I won like the school speech award at my school and um, I've always enjoyed like public speaking actually mm -hmm. um, and actually I do feel energized when I talk to people and 
that that to and flow sense really sort of inspires me, but it, it drains me at the same time. But yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. And I've always been quite an animated person as well. And mm. actually, in high school, I had a I was a radio DJ as well. So okay, and that was a lot of fun. And yeah. again, you know, no one can see what you're doing, but you're you know waving your arms around and doing all sorts of facial expressions. Yeah, that's right. Well, it it helps, I think, to you know our bodies are connected. It's not like it's a abstract thing. You gotta express yourself. Um, I think sometimes we get too caught up in labels as well. You know, like I'm either an extrovert or an introvert. And the reality is that we're all, it's a vast spectrum. And some days we might be over here and some days we might be there because I'm similar to you. I love just getting a book and reading and just nobody, nobody talk to me now. (laughs) Um, But equally, I really love being on the stage and talking to people and sharing some information, particularly if I feel passionate about it, you know, that. I want to tell you this new thing. So sounds quite similar. Yeah, it's something I'm passionate about. I really do get fired up and excited. And I think, I mean, I don't think I'm a particularly talented speech maker or writer, or, but hopefully that sense of passion flows through. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you're coming up, you know, getting to the end of your degree. And yeah, did you know what you would do next? And No, any- not at all. And actually we felt, both my wife and I, quite lost in the sense that we had this sense that we had to know what we were going to do. And, sure. um, you know, and parents were asking, you know, what are you going to do? Um, what did we do? We um, moved to Australia, where we um, unfortunately had grand plans to, to move on to Europe, which we sort of ran out of money and ended up coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up traveling through India for four months, uh, which was f- an amazing experience and sort of opened my horizons. My wife had traveled to quite a few different countries, whereas you know I hadn't been overseas at all except for Australia. Mm. Um, so that was an amazing experience. I ended up growing my job from Greenpeace and from a street fundraiser to a uh, an activist and a campaigner. Mm-hmm. So that was an amazing sort of part of my life that... We mostly lived out of our van, and we would I would do a contract for Greenpeace for a few months. Um, one was um, around McDonald's use of their products, and I literally drove around the country in a van with a whole bunch of chicken suits, and in each town we would go to a McDonald's store and we'd put on the chicken dance song. The, the group of chickens would burst into the um, store. We'd hand out unhappy meals. Um, it was during that campaign I dressed up as Ronald McDonald and chained myself to their factory, which that photo, which was incredible, um, went viral before the term viral media had been in- invented. And the following days, I got all these newspaper clippings from around the world that this photo had appeared <laughs> like on the Brazilian newspaper and the Israeli newspaper. And uh, that was one of these campaigns I worked on. And it was amazing because in the matter of six weeks, we'd convinced the world's largest fast food company to change their policies. Mm. Um, and it was because we had a good message. Yeah, we got people really involved in this fun campaign. But that one image um, and that sort of that massive global media coverage um, yeah, helped persuade this company to change. Wow. So it was quite a cool lifestyle. And then we would just go camping for uh, or touring around New Zealand. But again, still the sense of what on earth are we going to do with our lives? You know, mm. we were only working part-time jobs. Mm. So that yeah, that's quite an unusual job description. <laughs> so you know, your early twenties, mid twenties to be traveling around, um, but pretty cool opportunity too, because you must have gone to places that would just be names on a map otherwise. Yeah, that's right. I've actually done quite a number of sort of national tours now and. It's the best way to, to get to know your country because you get to visit all those small towns and mm. we're pretty open people as well. So you get to have conversations and you know, sometimes people invite you in for a cup of tea or 
whatever it might be. So, look, even though it wasn't good professionally, uh, you know, I wasn't. I guess I did build a career on the back of it. So I ended up becoming a full-time campaigner at Greenpeace and mm-hmm. got to do some really exciting things. So, yeah, it built my career. It definitely wasn't financially rewarding. Uh, working as sort of a, a part-time contracted uh, activist and campaigner. But I was just passionate about these issues. And I also had amazing opportunities, like sailing on the Rainbow Warrior, trying to stop deep-sea fishermen you know, destroying the seabed in the, the Tasman Sea for three weeks. So... You know, being out at sea for three weeks doing such exciting adventures was um, an amazing opportunity. Mm. And from what I'm telling, you know, from what I'm hearing, this was not a really deep sense of calling for you that that these were issues that needed to be known. And you'd one-on-one been trying to convince people to join. But all of a sudden you're given a vehicle to potentially reach thousands and tens of thousands or with that photo lots more (laughs) yeah and a sense that i was part of a wider team working towards it and it was effective Mm -hmm. um look i've spent more than 20 years working on environmental and social issues now and i would have burnt out many many years ago if i thought it was hopeless or grim i've seen change happen i've I've been part of teams that have made change happen so Mm -hmm. i guess that's why i've been able to continue it is because change is possible yeah and i've seen it and in terms of the people and, you know, you mentioned the burnout and, and the fact that there were other people there with you. Yeah. What was that like? You know, the environment of because I can imagine it would be quite um, an amazing group if you're seeing a change and then you're coming back together and planning out the next campaign or what are we going to do next? Yeah, uh, I think people similar to me, really inspired and passionate about the issues, wanting to be able to try and do something about it. Uh, Many of those people are are still involved too. So, um, yeah, just a great group of people. Mm. And I think hopefully this is the case for everyone else. Like you're in your field or your employment place because you like the people you work with. Mm. I was really lucky to, you know, we had a great fun time together. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing to think, for me anyway, how ideas spread and how they change and how they become accepted as part of the culture. Um, I brought a little book I'm going to show you later called The Quiet Before, um, which is a person in America writing basically about how change happens in society and how you actually have to socialize and get ideas to spread before it becomes an acceptable thing. And too often we jump to the conclusion and say this is the change that's needed without having done the socializing and the changing of hearts and minds at a grassroots level Um, and it's interesting to think about today and then go back 20 years ago because like you say there would have been a lot of people who were saying oh it's just temporary you know it's this is just a little cycle of um, temperature fluctuation Uh, we don't need to make any changes and I see a similar thing when it comes to the role of companies in the world um, because I think we should be aiming for where we're going to be 50 years or 100 years from now and then projecting back from that to change what we think about the role of companies but it's a slow rock to push up the hill (laughs) today that I think in generations to come, they'll be like, why didn't they realize it? Like, it was so obvious. And I think it's hard for those early adopters that are pushing these ideas or just starting the conversation because often you're ignored or um, you're ridiculed for it. People think you're a bit odd. Mm. Um, 
and often in hindsight they don't get the recognition they deserve either it's the people down the adoption curve yeah. uh, who maybe get to enact the changes who, who reap all the credit so uh, yeah that's something I've felt a little bit in sort of my career is that you know some of the issues I were advocating were seen as not mainstream at the time things like warm healthy rentals I launched a bill in 2011 and we you know we do have standards now, but we still don't have a warrant of fitness, which I think we need. I remember launching a campaign for the CBD rail link, which will, will finally be built in, in a few years' time. Things like banning shark finning um, was an issue that I sort of championed and put on the radar, and um, now that's been banned in New Zealand. So, yeah, I've been lucky to be part of sort of these building campaigns, and it just takes time sometimes. Mm. But I've been lucky to always sort of back myself and being a bit of a geek as well you know when you look at the evidence and the the the, the case studies and um i've always sort of based my decisions on those and you know the evidence you know is true and i think you know maybe it's just giving people the opportunity to to find it as well becomes compelling yeah yeah and i think it's so easy to become disillusioned when you don't see immediate change but actually, sometimes the work that you're doing won't be seen for years to come. And um, I've been realizing more and more things that, things that you do today, you know, it's important to do them because it's influencing the thinking for people five years or ten years from now that you may never meet, you know. But it, it needed the building block of what's done here that feels like it wasn't successful, but actually it paves the way for something that comes later. And like you say... You may be a footnote in history, but if that hadn't happened, it, it wouldn't go through as easily. I mean, as an example, Section 131 is up for review right now, which is the duties of directors. So Dr. Duncan Webb has proposed this additional considerations. And the fascinating thing to me isn't that people are saying we don't need them. The, the biggest counter-argument seems to be we already do that. Whereas I think five or ten years ago, people would have said, we don't need them. You know, it's, so there's been a shift in the culture. So even if it isn't passed or adopted, there still is a recognition that things have changed from 10 or 20 years ago, which is really, yeah, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, I've got a similar example that um, I brought our co-founder of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, Dr. Catherine to Trebek to New Zealand. And we had meetings with everyone from the finance minister to packed out like Crown Plaza Hotel in Auckland and a whole series of events in between. Not a single person was saying that the current system or business as usual is working. Mm. Ten years ago, I think there would have been quite a vocal group of people saying, yeah, we need to stick to it, actually. We need to double down on trickle down or whatever it might be. Actually, everyone now acknowledges that things are a little bit broken and we need to change. Whereas that definitely, you know, like your example, wouldn't be the case. I also wonder if it's kind of like maybe the business world, but what I've seen in sort of my campaigning and social change-making work is persistence really counts as well. Mm. Um, too often you fall into the trap of you launch something, it's really exciting, uh, you get lots of attention, um, but then it doesn't maybe go to the next step. So instead of sticking at it or, or sustainably building it, you do something new and you launch a new thing and it's all very exciting, but then it doesn't grow. So you mm. launch something new again. Um, sometimes there's a role for persistence and sustainable growth. Mm. I think that's a good point because you're right, it, it becomes easier to do the next thing rather than staying with the concept that just needs to be reinforced. Um, yeah. 
I was involved with Akina Foundation in doing a report in 2019 on the future of companies. And that felt, it took us nine months to write it. I'm still really, really proud of that report. But it felt like it went into a void in terms of, I know people read it. I know it's out there and gets cross-referenced and referred to and things. But I haven't seen the immediate impact. But if you keep talking about the concepts and you keep pointing to it, now over time I'm realizing it does have an important role to play as well. So, And it's part of that discourse and yeah. what I've sort of learned over time as well is the way we think about things is so important, the, mm. the, the hearts and minds and the narratives and framing of issues. So I'm sure that was part of actually the, the, the conversation we were having as a country. And mm. again, like... What I've seen within government has changed massively as well. So 10 years ago, the Productivity Commission was saying the answer to tertiary education was putting student loan interest back on. Now the Productivity Commission's coming up with amazing reports around how indigenous frameworks can you know, catalyse change in New Zealand and you know, address persistent disadvantage and make us more prosperous. So we're seeing those big changes, mm. uh, which you know, I think it's really exciting and inspiring. Yeah. That's cool. Well, this is why I love the podcast, because we can go off on all these little tangents. But coming back to your life now, (laughs) so um, politics played a big role in your life for a number of years. How did you end up taking that step from Greenpeace, you know, campaigner to actually, I want to get involved in politics? Yeah, and again, like most of my life, an, an entire accident and just, you know, fortune intervened. So I had been working for Greenpeace for a few years doing contracts, unable to get a full-time job. And, and a friend of mine at Greenpeace was friends with Jeanette Fitzsimons, who was the, the first Green elected to Parliament and uh, was the co-leader, and she was looking for a new executive assistant. So um, this friend jacked up a job interview for me, so, you know, I quickly raced to a store and bought a new, you know, button-up shirt and right. raced to the <laughs> airport to, to meet her at the Corrie Lounge for a sort of snatch time for an interview. I got a call the next day saying, sorry, the, the job wasn't for me. Um, but Jeanette had a new job she was creating as a climate outreach campaigner. Uh, so that sounded like a dream job. So instead of just managing her diary, I was able to go around again the country and talk to people about this issue I was really passionate about. And so I got to work with Jeanette for, for two years and Sue Kedgley, who was another Green MP on youth outreach and over those two years, I rebuilt the Young Greens network, uh, which was kind of defunct and, and dormant. Um, that was an interesting story. Um, I convened the first call of the Young Greens, um, and I think there were about four people across the country that joined. So wasn't much to start with, but my grand strategy was to just get people face-to-face again. So what I organised was a summer camp in Jeanette Fitzsimons' Hazelnut Orchard and Thames Coromandel, and over the years, hundreds of young people have camped in this in this orchard by the river uh, and had an amazing experience. And gosh, I think it's gone on for, for 12 years or something. It's sadly finished now with, with her passing. But that's how the Young Greens were, were able to rebuild. So I got involved in the party um, through the parliamentary wing, working on climate change and youth issues. And then I decided to put my hand up to, to run for parliament. Yeah. I thought you had to be like in your 50s or 60s to do that. So I did it more as a chance to sort of wave the flag and, again, be able to articulate these issues I was passionate about. And I think I was just lucky in the right place at the right time. And, yeah, I was given an electable seat and um, just missed out on election night 2008, which was the best thing uh, that ever happened to me because I then went back to Greenpeace where I was invited to run their biggest, most well-funded campaign, uh, in the lead up to the 
2008, no, 2009 Copenhagen Climate Talks. And that was the first time Greenpeace really worked with a big range of celebrities. So that's when Lucy Lawless and others sort of came to Greenpeace. You know, I led, I think, four or 6,000 people marching up Queen Street just before that conference, a huge number of really cool events. And then one night I got a call from Russell Norman, who was the co-lead of the Greens, saying, hey, mate, uh, Jeanette, don't tell anyone, but Jeanette Fitzsimons is about to, to retire. You're going to Parliament soon. And um, it was an amazing experience, and I bought... Um, some hot chips <laughs> it's the thing I remember because I was living by myself at that point because my wife was uh, doing her masters in Wellington while I was up in Auckland so we were sort of commuting for the year um, yeah that's how I celebrated which is the weirdest <laughs> thing in the world um, yeah and then early in the next year I went to parliament and you know I was massively in debt uh, with student loans and uh, credit card debt um, didn't have a suit um, Jeanette actually lent me $10,000 to buy a suit and relocate to Wellington. Um, yeah, and then I was elected to Parliament. Wow. So it sounds like you were a pretty authentic youth voice then, <laughs> coming in to represent, you know, not having a suit, not having that same background as what might be expected. Yeah, it was a, just a very genuine sort of real experience. And um, I sort of had that, not, I don't want to say wait, because it didn't feel like a wait at all, but I had a sense that I was there to, to be a different type of politician um, than the traditional uh, mould. So what shape did that take for you? What was different about what you did? Well, the activities I ran. Look, I mean, when when I first entered Parliament, um, I was told by the the lovely staff, you know, here's your entitlements and you're, you're free to take unlimited air travel. You can fly anywhere you want, even go to Great Barrier for a holiday for the weekend. I was astounded that that was possible that that was happening and had for decades so I renounced that immediately when I was elected and you know I said that I would only ever fly for parliamentary reasons for 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 work reasons um, which I wish more politicians would do and the rules would actually change Um, but um, I did a speaking tour called the world uh, cheer up the futures bright um, which was a bit of a challenge for parliamentary service to fund the posters but we got there in the end Uh, you know to promote my bill on rental quality, warm, dry, healthy home standards, I went around the country doing flat warming parties where I would arrive at a student flat, kind of like a cottage meeting where they'd invite their friends around. And I'd bring a giant mug of um, mulled wine and I'd sit there making this mulled wine, talking about what I was finding around rental standards. Um, I tried to get people to see the, the problems happening in society. So rather than just talking about all the, the horrible state of our rental accommodation in New Zealand, I organised tours where I'd take politicians around a series of horrible rentals to show them this is what real people are living in New Zealand. I remember taking Jacinda Ardern when she was you know, an opposition politician like I was to houses and you know, seeing houses with black mould on the roof. Like mm. They would look like it was painted black, but it wasn't. It was a white roof that was just black mould. So maybe those are some examples of doing politics a little differently. Yeah. And the the thing that interests me is that you had that grassroots campaigning, you know, you building up person by person movements and then you're thrust into the, you know, the the epicenter of the power, you know, like you're a member of parliament. I guess with reflection looking back, you know, I'm curious about the differences between that work you had been doing and then the work you're doing at that other level. Any reflections on that? Well, I I sort of describe it as I was banging on the outside door 
and then once I was elected, I was banging on the inside walls, right. trying to get attention of these really important issues like poverty, inequality, climate change. Um, I remember national MPs used to roll their eyes at me when I'd question the government about Maui's dolphins. And, you know, that population continues to decline and um, is close to extinction. Mm. Um, this is a really important issue. It's not just a trivial sideshow. Um, I've sort of forgotten the the, the question. Um, just the contrast, because what you had been doing was going town to town, you know, gathering people, winning hearts and minds of individuals, and then you're in Parliament, you know, making speeches or talking. Yeah, I guess the contrast is really interesting to me. And one thing I've always wondered about is the effectiveness of being a politician in the epicenter of power versus someone who's activated and out motivating people on the ground i guess it's different forms of influence right yeah and most of my career was in opposition when john key was the prime minister so i sort of continued that campaigning approach which was mm. you know i didn't have the the numbers in parliament to change a law but i did have the ability to change the discourse or to boost public opinion so i kind of used those old tactics and techniques i had used for campaigning at greenpeace and my parliamentary work and I was given, you know, a, a platform where I could stand and reach more people uh, by virtue of the position. You know, I was given a lot more resources in the sense that, sure, I wasn't flying to Great Barrier for a holiday, but you know, I did get around the country t talking about the the work and the issues, mm. uh, which I wouldn't have been able to without that position. It definitely opened doors, and maybe that was one of the, well, it really is one of the great privileges of the role. Sir Geoffrey Palmer used to describe being a politician as the best education you can have into your country. And I think what he meant by that and what I felt was that, you know, I could go meet people at their, their science lab or their factory or they'd invite me into their home and share their life story around their kitchen table. That was an amazing privilege. So, mm. yeah, I, that was sort of the platform I used. Yeah, uh, It was an interesting time. So I was elected in 2010. That was when, you know, Facebook was only a few years in mass adoption. You know, smartphones were a still relatively new thing. Digital campaigning was this new area as well, and you know the old traditional media gatekeepers were breaking down. So I was able to like crowdsource the first legislation, which was not not passed. It was just a bill, but an internet rights and freedoms bill. So trying to use these new um, technologies as well to do things differently. Mm, yeah, well, it's really interesting to hear your reflections, and I'd love to find out more about what you're doing today. So maybe transition us out of that time in your life, and then. Obviously, we've had COVID, and I know you wrote a book. Yeah, tell us about that transition from what you were doing as an MP in, into what you're doing today. Well, in my parliamentary career, you could sort of graph my satisfaction and enjoyment with it. Right. As time progressed, it, it dropped every year. The first few years were incredibly fun. Um, I was... It was a pretty grueling lifestyle, you know. I was away from my family for much of the time, um, traveling constantly for work. Um, yeah after 20 years of advocacy feeling a little burnt out that we weren't making the change fast enough commensurate with the scale of the problems mm -hmm. so i decided you know 10 years was was long enough in parliament and i decided to retire at the 2020 election our grand plan was to go sailing as a family i'd become really passionate about sailing in okay. the tail end of my career <laughs> yep. doing courses and you know listening to all the podcasts and reading all the books and, um, yeah, we moved to Dunedin. We had a succession of family deaths, unfortunately, that also acted as a bit of a catalyst for change. So we moved to Dunedin to support family down there mm -hmm. and be close to them. And then we um, found all the borders closing and our dreams of 
buying a yacht and either sailing around North America or the Pacific were were, were dashed. Um, but from the little cottage window on the Otago Peninsula where we were renting, we could see this island. And our landlord actually said that this island was looking for a new family to take it over as the only residence. So we ended up again, like Fortune just opened a door for us and we ended up moving to this little island as a family. Wow. There I was able to live frugally and spend a year writing a book about my mentor, Jeanette Fitzsimons, who sadly had, had passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, then couldn't help myself being a bit of a do-gooder, so got really involved in the local conservation work and the local conservation board, pest control boards. And I sort of realized that I've tried everything, right? Passing laws, amendments, campaigns, on-the-ground work. It was all sort of fighting the system, and I was focused entirely on the symptoms. And I had a sense that, gosh, we've really got to start asking, why do we have all these problems, and what's the drivers? What are the systemic causes of this issue? And then I just saw that the Wellbeing Economy Alliance was looking for someone to set up the organization in New Zealand as, as, a, as a registered charity. This global organization was very fortunate to, to get the position. So that's where I am today, working for this uh, organization, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance Aotearoa. That's great. Well, I'd love to find out about that and what it actually means. Like, what are you doing day to day and things? But the book that you mentioned, um, it sounds like that was a labor of love, you know, as a memory for her. Um, What was your motivation for pulling that together? Well, I had a dream that I was going to write a book when I left Parliament. Mm I'd I'd done a bit of soul-searching in Parliament and not sure what I was going to do next. You know, I'd always sort of fallen into into jobs and and career paths. And what I did realise I loved about politics was researching a complicated topic and finding a way to communicate it. You know, I'd done then everything from science issues to environmental issues to social issues. So I thought, gosh, if I could just spend a bit of time to decompress after Parliament and research and write about something I was interested in. And I had a whole bunch of different book ideas that were started or developed. And then Jeanette sadly had just died before the first lockdown. And um, she hadn't, I wish she'd written the book herself because she had such an amazing story and was such a pioneer and leader for New Zealand. And it was kind of apparent that this was the book that just needed to be written. And uh, maybe I was the best person to write it in the sense that I had a bit of an inkling of what the parliamentary lifestyle was like. You know, I I had all the contacts and people who had known her throughout her career, um, the time to to dedicate myself to this project. So, yeah, I approached a bunch of publishers. Many of them were very keen. I was really lucky to work with Ellen and Unwin publishers. And, gosh, that was a, a real highlight of my life, this ability to dedicate myself to a single project and it kind of felt like mining in a sense. So I like spent three weeks at the Turnbull Library in Wellington and you know, going through these mountain of papers, but you'd find like these gems uh, amongst <laughs> the, the, you know, the, this thing which no one ever knew uh, about Jeanette or about the, the history of New Zealand politics and society. I mean, I discovered that she started the country's first ever climate campaign in the 1980s. A pretty amazing achievement, in my opinion, but something she'd never boasted about or made a big deal about. But I was able to sort of tell that story that, mm. gosh, we've known about this stuff for a long time. Uh, it also then became a stressful, frustrating patch as I spent too long in the research phase and missed one deadline and uh, ended up pulling sort of 12, 16 hour days to, to finish the book. Uh, 
the other motivation for writing that particular book was that Jeanette was involved in the Values Party, which was the world's first ecologically focused political party at the national level anywhere in the world. And their anniversary was in 2022. So I sort of had this ticking clock in the back of my mind as well that no one wants to read a book about the 20, 51st anniversary of the world's first party. I had to get it in time for the 50th anniversary. And I made it, which was great. And uh, it's a story which isn't well known in New Zealand, but this is this globally significant idea. Um, traditionally, politics has been a, a story around the isms, you know, Marxism, neoliberalism, liberalism, Keynesianism. They're all sort of built on this sort of growth paradigm as if treats the environment as if it's something that will absorb infinite waste and take infinite resources uh, to give to us. Whereas the idea that we had to design our society and economy within the natural world was this idea that came from New Zealand. And in the end, the German Greens, the most successful Green Party, wrote to the New Zealand Values Green Party, asking to borrow their policies for their first manifesto. So it was a story I wanted to tell that I think is you know, internationally significant about this ragtag group of people in New Zealand that inspired the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'll have to get a copy of the book. <laughs> um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes so if people are listening, they can click and find out where they can get a copy. Um, I think sometimes it's actually better if someone else writes about a person because probably, I'm assuming, it, to tell a story about yourself there's a, almost a self-filter um, that you would put in and say, oh, well, that wasn't that important. I won't mention that, and I won't talk about that thing. Whereas an objective third party you know, who knew her was probably able to come in and bring a lens and describe it and talk about it in a way that was quite different to just a biography. Yeah, and she was just so self-effacing and sort of focused on her mission and work that she might have seen it as a sort of a as a luxury mm. when there was important work to to get on with so perhaps she never would have done that herself so look i remember um spending a night with her uh, the week before she passed um you know and she was thinking about the future and talking about what her priorities were for the election and what we needed to do for the environment so even right to the end you know she was entirely focused on mm. you know her work and trying to make a better world yeah Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing about that. I really enjoyed hearing about the book. So now, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, tell us a bit about that. You know, like, um, what's the origins of it? And then tell us, I'm, I'm really curious what the vision would be for the future. You know, like, what, what would be different from what we have today? Well, this is another really exciting, inspiring story, I think. So in 2019, a group of sort of leading thinkers came together. So Kate Rowarth from Donut Economics, Tim Jackson, uh, author of Steady State Economics, people like Bob Costanza, Ecological Economics, Dr. Catherine Trebek, uh, talking about well-being. They came together and sort of said, man, there's all this amazing work happening internationally, mm. but there's no one working to connect all this work. No one's there to amplify uh, and promote. So that was the genesis of the Alliance globally. So it's been running for about four years now, and it's a genuine alliance of organization, hundreds of organizational members, thousands of individuals. We've got academics networks, government networks, of which New Zealand was a foundational member. Uh, 
built around the kaupapa that we need to redesign our economic systems to move beyond just promoting economic develop growth GDP from any source to actually promoting what's the purpose of the economy you know it's to deliver well-being so that people have good livable lives that they can participate they're connected uh, they have the material needs they need that we have a healthy environment so the alliance operates globally we've got hubs in 15 states We've got an amazing team in New Zealand who have been working uh, for about three years before I came involved, uh, Professor Paul Dalziel, Justin Morris, uh, Susie Morrissey and Justin Connolly, uh, and they secured some funding to employ me to sort of lead the operations in New Zealand. And again, you know, I'd spent most of my career focused on the symptoms, so it was so uh, satisfying to be able to focus really on the systemic drivers of issues. Um, to, to square the circle a bit, um, a little bit burnt out uh, and tired after politics, genuinely re-inspired by working on Jeanette's project. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, like I'm a politician making it up, but when I looked at her 50 years of advocacy, where she was working as an absolute pioneer on climate change, dedicated her life to it, despite most of that time being ridiculed and ignored, uh, it sort of gave me a bit of a kick up the pants as well that, you know, you need to continue, Gareth, as well. Right. <laughs> so that's why it was great for to, to, to get involved in the organisation. So globally, like, we organise conferences, events, uh, promote all these new schools of economic thinking. Like we were talking about before, you know, everyone sort of realises the business as usual isn't working. So everyone's kind of asking, what's next? You know, well, what do we do about it? And that's where I think the conversations moved on in New Zealand and internationally. And that's where I think, you know, the most important mission is how do we redesign the economic systems that they, you know, deliver the outcomes we say we want, mm. which is things like livable incomes, housing for all, you know, a thriving natural environment. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear because I think you're right. And I, I said this when I was introducing at the start, you know, systems and how do we change or transition from one way to another? I always give the picture, and I'm sure you've used it too, of the fish in the goldfish bowl they don't know they're in water and we're the same way you and i we actually are similar in many ways we grew up through the 80s and 90s you know in aotearoa new zealand a particular context that we come from that shaped us but we don't even necessarily know that it shaped us but we think this is the way it's meant to be and i always like to think about 200 years ago or 400 years ago you know there wasn't companies the way that we think of them today they're a complete fiction we made them up to inspire and to encourage entrepreneurs so that there's limited liability but it doesn't have to be that way you know like you can actually change things as well and that's what gets me excited thinking through you know in 50 or 100 years maybe someone will listen to this interview and say that's you can see the seeds of where things were headed but um then the fascinating bit is the conversations, because I know you're down here to have some conversations. You had some catch-ups yesterday with people, and that's really the individual connecting and the groundswell of talking, isn't it? Before trying to have massive change, you've got to have the building up of some uh, ideas of what it would be. Yeah, and there's some fascinating international research that social change movements uh, the tipping point isn't 50% or isn't a massive number. Actually, it's more like 2.5% right. uh, that you can make fundamental change. And, you know, I've seen that, we've seen that throughout our lifetimes. I mean, 15 years ago, marriage equality was seen as not something for, for that time. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's just mainstream and most people think it's a wonderful thing, which it is. You know, we, we can see rapid social change. So 
when it comes to those economic systems, I think people struggle to see it. Um, Often we only hear from bank economists, you know, we're talking about the economy. It's often presented in the media as if it's like the weather or like some sort of natural phenomenon that we don't have agency or control over. Whereas when you look at history, what we know is the economy very much is a product of design. It's a man-made concept with rules and structures designed. Therefore, it can be redesigned. So you're, you're right when you take that very long historical perspective, um, you know, just from my lifetime you know i've grown up in the shadow of that revolution which commenced in 1984 where we moved from more of an egalitarian sort of more collective society to one that's very focused on wealth accumulation individualism very extractive of the environment Um, but that can change again Mm. so that's what i'm trying to encourage people so yeah you mentioned what we were doing yesterday i've literally been driving around the country in a camper van uh, which I, is, I'm calling an economics listening tour. So originally, I'll, I'll be honest, I had the wrong idea. I was going to go out and talk to people. I was going to you know, uh, proselytize around degrowth economics and uh, new uh, great ideas coming from Māori economics. And I got some advice. Hey, why don't you flip it on its head? Why don't you go talk to ordinary people and ask them what they think about the environment? And then you can pass up those aspirations, those goals, the the outcomes they want to see, you can pass that on to politicians. Mm. Uh, so I'm very much trying to empower people to, to take back the agency of the economy. I get the sense in the past people had a lot more say or a lot more involved or it was talked about in a much more of a public sense, whereas today it's sort of confined to the business pages of the paper. So I'm having wonderful conversations around the country. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the changes that can happen as well. Like I remember, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember getting on an airplane and in the seat beside me, there was a place where you would extinguish your cigarettes because everyone smoked, you know, and it was just smoking on the plane. Yeah, no problem. And think about that compared to today. You know, it's just such a massive change. If you think about it, like months by months, there wasn't change, but then over time yeah. you look back and you go, wow, that's been a big even, shift. Even seatbelts, I mean, absolute common sense, madness to consider otherwise. Uh, and I think in 50 years we'll look back at climate change, for example, and think madness that you mm-hmm. you, know, you thought you powered economy on coal and fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I want to drill down a little bit into the well-being side of the well-being economy, because I think you're right. For most of us, when when we hear the word economy, people are talking about oh, the interest rate just went up, or, oh, inflation, that's a big word that's used a lot right these days, um, or, you know, the um, average income and things like that. So when you're talking about well-being economy, just paint the picture of what we're talking about there. Because I'm, I'm imagining, well, I'll tell you what I think it is, <laughs> which is that it's a bigger picture than just the economic data that we would normally be focusing on or in the past would have focused on where an economist would say well the gdp is blah 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 and the interest rate is blah 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 and therefore the economy is doing well or not whereas well-being to me that's more of a holistic view of humans that there's lots of aspects to our lives and so you wouldn't want to have this interest rate here being the measure of how well people are actually doing is that the kind of the gist of it or what is it in no your very much so so i mean most of our discourse publicly is around those measures you know interest rates or yeah uh, the official cash rate um however the, the the subtext is that whatever the problem and this has been the the habit for 150 years whatever the problem is it's going to be fixed by more economic growth that's the raison d'etre of politicians 
It was interesting talking to people active in the, the formation of the Values Party in the 70s. They called Labour and National back then the concrete parties. Because sure, they disagreed how the pie should be split, but they both wholeheartedly agreed their purpose in politics and society was to pour more concrete, be it hydro stations, be it motorways, be it new buildings. It was growth, growth, growth. Yet what we're finding today is that the the fruits of that growth aren't being shed fairly, you know, massive inequality. The growth's kind of leaving a bit of a sour taste in our mouth. I mean, looking at other indicators we should look at, as well as, you know, the OCR and the inflation rate, is unhappiness, teen suicide, you know, how unsatisfied people feel in their lives. So we're, we're questioning what the purpose of the economy is. I would say that this growth model, this trickle-down approach just isn't working. Um, it's not leading us happier lives. It's really leaving a whole bunch of people to fall off the boat effectively, and we're kind of in the position now where collectively we've just accepted that a whole bunch of people are going to fall off the boat into poverty, into homelessness, into horrible conditions, whereas we can structure the economy to deliver well-being for people. Mm. So it's kind of like trying to lay down new economic tracks and actually having a clear sense of direction. What is the economy for? Are, are we servants of the economy or is the economy the servants of us? And this is the great challenge of our age. How do we design an economy that's not going to drive us off a cliff with climate change and biodiversity collapse? You know, how can we make sure that people have liver, you know, good livable incomes and can lead the type of lives they want to lead? So it's a lot broader than just the well-being approach as adopted by central government. Mm. So we've got well-being budgets, a well-being report, the living standards framework within Treasury, all really good stuff, all really good starts. But they're only starts. They're not transformational changes to a new operating system. When I go around the country, I often pull out my phone and talk about the economy's kind of runs on an operating system, kind of like Android or iOS on your phone. In the, 90, in the 80s, we installed a new operating system, and we've had upgrades and patches since then, but the fundamental operating system still is there, and that allows what apps you can run or, or can't run. And um, I think the big question is, what's this new operating system we're going to install that allows certain apps or programs to run or not run? And mm. that, that's our challenge. Yeah, and that new operating system that you're describing um, have we got it ready to go or is it we need more dialogue and discussion it sounds like there's a lot of thinking going on around the world it's not just here um yeah what would we introduce if we could i think we're almost there so i think we there is wide agreement on what the values should be so you know a clear purpose and you know i've been talking about you know your advocacy for business purpose in these meetings and people nod their heads and they can see it with b corps and and other four pro, uh, four purpose businesses i was at picks peanut butter the other day in nelson oh yeah you know mm-hmm. a net environmentally positive business um healthy food doing really great stuff you know they were really clear on their purpose uh, which was great. So we've kind of got the values there: purpose, you know, preventing problems, um, pre-distribution. So, you know, we should be asking the economy to to do some of the heavy lifting. And what I mean by that is, I mean we spend, I think it's two point four billion dollars a year on working for families. People are working forty hours plus a week, working incredibly hard, but they're still not earning enough to even live in New Zealand without top ups. Why can't we make sure we have a system where people are given a, a livable income in the first place? And things like participation, that people's voices are, are listened to, be it in, in the workplace, be it in some of these macro decisions. So we've kind of got those values and when you ask people what they want the operating system to look like, it's things like 
compassion, it's care, it's it's equity, it's not trashing the environment. So we know what we want, but I don't think any country yet has actually built a a system that's delivering that. We're seeing really exciting pockets of it. So, you know, large cosmetic companies that now have a board role dedicated for nature, someone whose job it is to advocate for that, you know, encouraging cooperatives in, in Italy, um, community wealth building initiatives in the UK and the US that have shown amazing results even over the times of COVID. Citizens' assemblies, which are being trialled around the world, we're seeing all these pockets of the new economy in practice. Mm. Um, is it the full operating system? Probably not yet, but we're close to it. Mm. I think people are coding very hard to design it. Yeah. I don't know how this question will come out, so bear with me, but you mentioned that your degree was in religious studies. And I'm just curious about parallels between what we're talking about here um, in conceptions of the world, if you want to put it, or paradigms of thinking when it comes to the economy um, and as compared to, say, religion. Is it, is there, have you reflected on that, you know, having studied that through tertiary studies? Is there some similarities here between, you know, say, a, a world religion and a view of the economy? Yeah, and when I study religion, I think what I really studied was humanity, because religion is a universal aspect of, of, of our species, and it can be seen in every culture and history throughout time. So really it's just a study of history, and much like religion, you know, the economy is kind of a story we tell ourselves, and unfortunately we've got some high priests who are kind of the, the gatekeepers and decide what the economy is and what it can and can't do, and often you know, those are the bank economists we hear from the media, or a very narrow set of decision makers. So... Uh, yeah, I think there are lots of interesting parallels, but mm. really they're both just how we structure our society. Mm. And religions have been a, a mechanism to um, get the best out of people. Is that the right way to say it? I'm not sure, but how to structure society so yeah. we get the outcomes we want. It's like a framework, want. isn't it? Yeah. A framework of thinking or a, you know, a, a discipline about thinking about your place in the world and you know what's your part to play. And it, I don't know, it's just as we were talking, it was making me think, in that sense, in, in some ways, what we're talking about is different paradigms of thinking, which is, you know, you could argue that the Milton Friedman perspective of shareholder primacy would be one conception of the economy. And then you're talking about a different conception of the economy. And then how do those talk to each other? How do they interact? Because probably no one conception is the whole truth. There's probably bits and elements from all of it that need to come together and 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 have a dialogue and have a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And just like how, how religions change, you know, and adapt to changing circumstances, we're seeing that with the economy. Now, I mean, I'm too young to remember sort of the, the you know, 60s and 70s. Um, but there were a lot of challenges. You know, there was stagflation, there was oil crises. Um, New Zealand's economic performance was really declining. We were dependent on a few range of commodities to export to Britain, which, you know, left us for the European community. Um, you know, we did have to change. And you could say that, you know, that the the Chicago School was a response to people wanting a bit more individual freedom, more ability and flexibility in the economy. And I think we've got a very different set of challenges facing us now from environmental, social, technological, with new technologies coming through. So as religions adapt and evolve, we've got to adapt and evolve. And there's a whole bunch of other challenges which kind of our economy isn't structured to meet those challenges patently not because so many people are falling off the boat and so much is is going wrong 
but that's what our job is. Mm. And I think pushing against the status quo gets the thinking going. And, and it does. You've got to question what, what has led us to this point where, you know, I'll get the stat wrong, but 1% of the population owns 50% of the wealth. Like, it's just absolutely crazy that there's some billionaires whose focus is going to space when there's people literally dying down the road of starvation. Um, so something... I think we all inherently know something's not quite right here. Um, I did quite a lot of work with the um, community housing sector, which I think you know through community finance. So we've raised $120 million to go towards social housing to help people into homes. But one of the things that we're talking about measuring isn't just the cost of the house, but it's also thinking through if, if a parents are having a stable home they're probably going to have stable jobs. Their children are probably more likely to be accessing good quality education. If the house is built with solar energy and double glazed and doesn't have the black mold, there's health outcomes. So if you look at it beyond the normal economic metrics of this house cost X amount of dollars and you think through in decades time, we'll look back at that house and say those children went on to do whatever study they wanted to and you know there was a family unit that was there healthy happy like you can't measure it right today in a figure but it will have long-term impact so it's just interesting to think beyond what we've traditionally measured yeah and i think a lot of the problems which are just so apparent in our society today have come about because we've taken such a narrow approach to measuring what what progress is so mm-hmm. that strict benefit cost ratio you know has caused a lot of problems but you know within the work of government i'm really excited to see things such as there's a, a wonderful housing regeneration project in Porirua. it would have fallen mm-hmm. over on the traditional financial benefit cost ratio index but by asking what other co-benefits are there from doing it, it overwhelmingly pushed it across the line. And, you know, those lives are better as a result. Mm. You know, the idea that um, if you can give maybe some micro-training credentials to, to families and there's some great Pacifica training programs in South Auckland, you know, just giving some people some, some training, some support, some credentials mm. helps them get into work. If you could give a couple of people a, a job in a family like that who was unemployed, it massively increases their income. Mm. It massively changes the life trajectory for the people involved in that whānau household. So we can really um, make a difference for people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, one thing that we've talked about is I'm doing the Seeds Impact Conference in October. So I'm hoping that you'll be able to pull together a panel of people who will be interesting to listeners, um, because I think this is the type of conversation we need to have more of. Um, so that's going to be basically an all-day event where there will be different Zoom rooms, so people will be able to listen in on conversations that are happening across um, three or four different you know, places, so you can go from this room to that room. So that would be really good, and um, yeah, I'm interested to learn more, and I want to thank you for spending so much time with me <laughs> because um, you've really been able to download a lot, both in your history, and I loved hearing about that early childhood, you know, growing up, what was shaping you, and, you know, even hearing about your father, you know, in freezing works, and, you know, what was it that was shaping you to then get involved in politics, to then move on and do what you do today? Because I think there's a consistency in a life, 
and it's really important to reflect and um, be able to see that as an encouragement for our listeners, for people who want to maybe do something different with their lives. So thank you very much for your time. And what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links to things and people can follow up with more. Oh, well, thanks, Stephen. It's been a wonderful conversation. And I'm just able to reflect. I've had a wonderful life. And, you know, stats show that people want sort of meaningful employment uh, more and more. And I've just been lucky to, to lead a life where I've been able to express my values. Mm, yeah, that's that's amazing. And it sounds like there's been serendipitous moments through the life. So that's worth pointing out as well, because sometimes, particularly for young people, you know, I got four young children and they're wondering about the future. But actually, if you're willing, one of the things about that, though, is that you had to have the attitude of being willing to go have the conversations, to go get the button shirt, to meet at the Koru Lounge to have that conversation you know it wasn't just handed on a plate there's some proactivity required as well so um, yeah yeah no that, that's true but equally so you know I was at a time where education was a little bit more affordable you know I could rent somewhere really cheaply when I was studying I feel that that's a lot harder for, for students today and mm. often in case they're doing like three jobs you know while trying to study at the same time so you're right there is a role for personal agency and to to take the opportunities and do what you want to do but there's a, a role for society as well to enable the people to have the capabilities they want to express mm, yeah well thank you so much for sharing and it'll be great to continue to track with you as you're going with your career and i'm with mine we'll stay in touch and i want to say thanks so much for joining the show today thank you very much well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gareth. For me, there was a bunch of highlights, and I enjoyed hearing his life story and what's led him to be involved in the things he does today. If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the 350 other episodes in the back catalog? And there's plenty of information on this project at theseeds.nz. Until next time, kakiteano!